Hello, and welcome to the Stem Cell Report. I'm Martin Perra, the Editor-in-Chief of Stem Cell Reports, the open access journal of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. In this monthly podcast, we look at highlights from the latest advances in stem cell research appearing in the journal. We'll be speaking to authors to explore the questions that led to new breakthroughs and learn how they've tackled those questions. We will hear about the background to novel findings, the challenges ahead, and we'll get to know a little bit about the personalities behind the work. Thanks for listening in. This episode is sponsored by Biotechni, and we will hear from them a little later in the podcast. Now today, we'll be talking broadly about the role of adult stem cells in tissue maintenance and repair. Tissue stem cells function in the development and homeostasis of many epithelia, including the epidermis, the outermost layer of the skin that functions as a protective mechanical and biological barrier against injuries, pathogens, and the loss of heat and water. Of course, the study of epidermal stem cells has a long history going back nearly five decades. Nevertheless, we still have much to learn about their characterization, identification, and function, especially as it relates to the various subcompartments of the skin, such as the hair follicles and interfollicular epidermis. Joining us today to talk about this topic and their paper are Drs. Hans Klavers and Kai Kretschmar. Dr. Klavers is a group leader at the Hubrecht Institute for Developmental Biology and Stem Cell Research and at the Princess Maxima Center for Pediatric Oncology. Dr. Kretschmar is a junior group leader at the MSNZ University Hospital Würzburg, Germany, and a formal postdoctoral fellow in the Klavers lab. They are the authors of a recent paper in stem cell reports entitled Troy TNF Receptor Superfamily 19 Marks Epidermal Stem Cells that Govern Interfollicular Epidermal Renewal and Cornification, a paper which, amongst other things, features some lovely whole mount images of epidermal tissue. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, uh, Martin. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Um, so I'll start out with, with Hans. And Hans, you, you may possibly be best known amongst our younger colleagues for your lab's pioneering work on organoids. But uh, earlier in your career, you were really focused on the wind signaling pathway, and you made some very significant discoveries regarding that pathway, its connection to colon cancer and stem cell function. So maybe you could tell us how you got from wind signaling to organoid models. I'll try to, to make this as, as brief as possible. Uh, actually, it goes back a little bit further. I, I was actually an immunologist during my postdoc, and I was a professor in immunology for about 10 years. And when I started my lab, we set out to clone transcription factors. This was in the, in the early 90s. Uh, transcription factors that would define T cells from uh, bone marrow stem cells. And we cloned a transcription factor in, in 1990 or so that we called TCF, T cell factor one. And uh, DNA binding protein, then there was no whole genome. The tools then were pretty crude compared to what we have now. Uh, it bound DNA, it never activated transcription for about five years. So uh, we wrote all sorts of interesting papers, but we could not convince anyone that TCF was a transcription factor. And then we found together with, or simultaneously with, with Walter Biermeyer, that TCF, TCF1 in this case, TCF234, uh, need beta-catene in as a co-activator. And that linked our transcription factors that we thought were important for lymphocytes only, 
all of a sudden to the wind pathway. It was the, the, essentially the missing piece in the puzzle. Uh, wind signaling had been mostly uh, already uh, elucidated. Wind binds its receptors, goes to the nuclear, goes to the cytoplasm, beta-catenin accumulates, but then the next step was unknown. And it turned out TCF was the next step. So it was the effector of wind signaling. Um, so then we started knocking out genes. That was also quite a novel technology in mice. And we noted that when we knocked out one of the TCFs, TCF4, mice die around birth. It took a long time to figure out why. And it turned out they had no proliferative epithelium in their gut. And that was the first link between wind signaling and stem cells in the gut. And actually then the stem cells weren't known. So, so, and, and then we linked wind to uh, mutations in the wind pathway in the gut to colon cancer. APC is mutated in almost all colon cancers. Um, so there was a, two links between wind and the gut. Mutations cause cancer and, and physiologically wind was needed to drive these elusive stem cells. So we combined those two insights, found the stem cells in the gut. 10 years later, 2007, it was Toshi Sato. Um, and then we found that everything was wrong with these stem cells when you would compare them to the textbooks. Uh, they were abundant. They were, most, most importantly, extremely proliferative. Whereas most people believe that stem cells have to be quiescent to, to, to live lifelong, that it would be dangerous to constantly divide. It's a good theory, but in practice, the gut doesn't use it. And when we saw that they proliferate constantly, this is now that, and driven by wind. In, uh, we could actually now mimic this in vitro. And again, this was a bit of luck because we, we were just trying to take one stem cell and turn it into many stem cells, like many labs were doing with ES cells and IPS cells. But rather than making many stem cells, we made a mini gut. And this was Toshisato. And, um, and this was first we thought, well, this is unique to the gut because these stem cells are so active. Then we learned that wind is probably the driver of all epithelial stem cells in all of all tissues. And uh, that with a little bit of work, you can actually modify the conditions for the gut organoids to any other epithelial organoid. And then the lab all of a sudden started trying to grow everything, including uh, Kai being a skin expert coming from Fiona Watts' lab, including the, uh, the epidermis. Well, that's quite a journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's taken us through a number of disciplines. And, sure. and what I've learned is, is it's very important to, to understand that the, the, the language and the culture of every discipline, because actually the, the cancer research is very different from developmental biologists and from cell biologists. And you need to have a few good friends, good collaborators who, who you know, who knows what the good reagents are, uh, what the outstanding questions are and things like that. But with a little bit of courage and good friends, uh, one can actually move disciplines quite easily, I find. Well, you've certainly done that. Um, so Kai, be before joining the Clavers Group, uh, you were a graduate student in Fiona Watts' laboratory, where, uh, not surprisingly, you studied the role of stem cells in the niche in the homeostasis in the skin. So you've had a good fortune to work with two great stem cell biologists and terrific people. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how the two labs compare as research environments. And remember, you're no longer directly accountable to either of them, so you can say whatever you want. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say that that comparing the two labs is somehow difficult because um, actually I experienced both of them at different stages of my career, right? So to me, the perspective of a PhD student where I was a PhD student with Fiona is very different to that of a postdoc. I, I was postdoc with Hans 
So um, I think the most prominent differences between the labs really come from their different uh, research interests. So Fiona, as we already discussed, really is interested in, in skin stem cells and is very interested in how skin stem cells really maintain a homeostasis of the tissue and how they communicate with their niche. So essentially how stem cell intrinsic signaling um, um, orchestrates stem cell behavior as well as extrinsic signals from the niche. And on the other hand, Hans, Hans already mentioned it, that, that his interest is much more broader in the lab is, is really studying essentially any epithelial uh, stem cell uh, compartment or any, any adult stem cell pool. We also worked on the heart, by the way. So, so it's really a very broad area that, that we do. And of course, Hans's, Hans's model system is, is, is really organoid technology, and that has been applied to many other areas, um, how it can be, for example, translated into the clinic. Um, I think both labs are, in, to a certain way, very similar in the sense of that they really are big labs. So um, I just counted, I think Fiona now has 30 people, Hans's lab has 45 people. So uh, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting, I think, for, for young PhD students as well as for a postdoc, because you, you meet a lot of people at different stages of their career, different backgrounds from all over the world with different interests and in research. Um, I think what they all share, though, is, is really the interest to do cutting-edge science, really um, developing new tools. Um, and, and at the same time, both give a lot of independence and freedom. So you can really explore and develop your projects and, and establish them as you like. Both have really low hierarchy levels. So, you know, when Hans's door is open, you can, you can go by and show him your newest exciting data, any breakthroughs you had. And the same is true for Fiona. So in that sense, you know, it, it gives a lot of, of freedom and, and we have always really, we always had really nice lab meetings where um, there was a lot of discussion and, and a lot of um, um, really, really thrilling science that was presented. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, as I said, research is different, but I think the environments are in that sense, probably quite alike. That's very interesting. You've obviously had a, a great experience in both places. Um, Hans, this is a paper that deals in part with lineage tracing, um, and our concept of, of cell lineages and adult renewing cell populations have changed quite substantially from the old hierarchical one-directional view from a primitive stem cell moving inexorably in one direction towards terminal differentiation. So um, you're really an expert in this field, so could you give us a summary of the current concepts of, of cellular plasticity and tissue renewal and repair? Yeah, so I think this field is 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 very much in flux, and and I'll give you my opinion. I'm sure that 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 many stem cell biologists have different perspectives on this. So, but but the history is indeed, as you say, that the the, the views also in our textbooks are very linear, uh, unidirectional, and they all come from the hemopoietic stem cell system, which has been you know, uh, discovered 60 years ago. Uh, now, enormous detail has been described now, has been used in, by doctors for 60 years, bone marrow transplants. And, but, but it's in a unique tissue because it's a, it's a liquid tissue, essentially. Um, and um, it, it may be for that very reason to keep track of what it's doing. It has to be very hardwired. Um, so I think the more we learn about these tissue stem cells in solid organs, like the skin or the gut or the liver or the lung, um, we learn that that every organ has essentially its own way of maintaining itself, of growing originally, yeah, developing, growing, and then maintaining itself uh, lifelong. 
And um, in some cases, it's driven by professional stem cells, like, like the muscle. They have the satellite cell. There's no way back when the satellite cell becomes a muscle fire, fiber. They are so different. A muscle fiber will not become a satellite cell, which is the stem cell of, of uh, striated muscle. Um, in the gut, you have professional stem cells that, that Sato, Toshisato discovered. Uh, but any other cell can take their place. So they are visible. They are stem cells. They're active. You can actually point at the cell and say, you're a stem cell. But it's not as hardwired as in the as in the hemopoietic system. If you remove it, another cell that was on its way out would probably die five days later. It turns around and happily becomes a stem cell and and lives lifelong. And um, in the liver, I wouldn't. I would argue that there are no professional stem cells. Essentially, they're the two principal liver cells, the hepatocyte and the bile duct cell, the cholangiocyte can moonlight as stem cells when needed, but they are fully functional. Um, so that organ has developed a totally different way of maintaining and repairing itself. And so I think the, the, the trap that we've fallen into is that, that we try to do, as biologists, always find very general, generally applicable uh, rules and systems. And I think organs, organ functions, organ size, organ dynamics are so different that every organ in evolution has, has come up with its own strategy. So to extrapolate even markers that work well in the bone marrow, if you see the same marker in the liver, it doesn't mean that that cell is a stem cell, it just, it just is a cell that happens to express that marker. So I think, well, it's nice because now every stem cell biologist can make uh, unique discoveries. It doesn't all have to fit in one, but it leads to lots of arguments and fights. I've seen... At meetings, you know, stomach or whatever organ, people claiming that they had found the stem cell and somebody else, no, I have found the stem cell. And they're probably all right, because in, in many organs, maybe most or even all cell types can revert to a stem cell uh, behavior. No. So we, we still have a lot to learn about uh, the, the molecular basis of all this plasticity, though. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean this means that there's no general pattern that, that returns uh, over and over again. Now, every tissue will have its own genes, its own growth factors, its own dynamics. Yeah. Kai, for those in our audience who may not be experts in skin biology, but are interested in stem cells, can you briefly highlight the current knowledge of stem cells in the skin? How do the different comp compartments of the skin stem cell system function in homeostasis? And how does their function change in wound repair? Sure. So, I mean, generally one can say that the skin really consists of two major parts. So we have the, the outermost layer, the epidermis and the underlying dermis, which essentially serves as a connective tissue in the skin. And as you mentioned earlier, Martin, the epidermis really comprises several subcompartments, you know, the stratified epitheme, which is called the interfollicular epidermis, and then associated hair follicles, sebaceous glands, and then sweat glands, which in the, in the human, of course, are across the whole body in the mouse. They are only found in the pores. And then uh, epidermal stem cells have initially been found in a histologically distinct part of the hair follicle, the so-called bulge. And at that time, um, these bulge stem cells were thought to be the sole source of stemness in skin epidermis. But then um, within the last 10 years or so, further research really revealed that probably each epidermal subcompartment has its own stem cell pools. And I have to say pools because, for example, in the hair follicle, since then there have been multiple stem cell markers identified that, that really replenish the hair follicle and, and all its compartments. However, you know, in this, in homeostatic processes, we have really restricted compartmentalized stem cells. 
uh, during following an injury, for example, when you know the interfollicular epidermis is lost with its stem cells, the hafalocal stem cells have the capacity to migrate upwards into the area and really partake in wound repair, essentially recreating the interfollicular epidermis. Um, in addition, in skin reconstitution experiments where you can take sorted cells and put them back into, uh, for example, hair-free mouths, you can see that these stem cells that you're sorted really can make the interfollicular epidermis and the hair follicle really from, from scratch, essentially. Um, and, and as Hans pointed out, this is, of course, a very prime example of how plasticity works in adult stem cells. You know that they can not only make one thing, but several. And, of course, I now talked about epidermal stem cells. Other labs have defined other skin stem cells. For example, melanocyte stem cells have been described, which also really are critical in tissue homeostasis and regeneration. Thank you. Um, now to turn to your recent paper uh, where you characterized Troy expression in the skin and found that it marked a population of stem cells. Can you kind of summarize your findings and what they mean for the understanding of how stem cells function in the skin? And I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear what structures you found in the epidermal organoids you studied. Sure. Um, yeah, I think an important aspect of, of our paper is that um, there have been, as I said, many hair follicle stem cell markers, markers that are specific to the hair follicle during different stages of, of skin development as well as homeostasis. But uh, such a marker has not been identified for the interfollicular epidermis so far. There has been one, for example, axon 2, but that has also been found to be expressed in the hair follicle itself during telogen, the hair resting phase, which is very critical and where most animal experiments are performed at. And this has been a very limiting factor for research. For example, if you want to target the interfollicular epidermis to study the contribution of this uh, subcompartment to tumor formation or how this compartment really acts during wound repair. And I think our paper really fills this gap because we found that Troy marks the base layer of the interfollicular epidermis um, and also the stem cells in the subcompartment. And in addition, during skin development, we found Troy to be expressed in the mouse as early as E12.5, so the embryonic day 12.5. And then Troy, therefore, is really one of the earliest epidermal stem cell markers to be expressed in the skin. And then in addition, in vivo, we use lineage tracing, and that really allowed us to show that the progeny of Troy-positive basal cells really contributes to the entire stratified epithelium, so the entire interfollicular epidermis, and therefore has really, joy positive cells really have stem cell capacity. In addition, Hans mentioned it already, we use organoid technology, and that's, that's a, a really nice form as well to show stem cell capacity because we can sort individual cells, put them into a hydrogel, and really show whether those cells have stem cell potential. And when we sort the joy positive cells, we could show that in contrast to the joy negative cells, really joy positive cells have a very high capacity to form organoids, and of course, that supports the notion that joy-positive basal cells really have stem cell capacity. Um, and yeah, that's, that's essentially what we can really show. And it reinforces, of course, this notion as well that the epidermal subcompartments are really maintained by local stem cell pools. Another striking finding that we had in our paper, and that was mainly revealed using uh, single cell sequencing, is actually that the epidermal base layer is very heterogeneous and contains keratinocytes that are have already the transcriptional signature of differentiating keratinocytes. For example, keratin 1 and 10, really typical markers of superbasal keratinocytes were really robustly expressed in those cells. And I think that really nicely highlights something else that Hans mentioned, and that is this continuum of, of differentiation 
that 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 is that is present, and you can imagine cells moving along this this differentiation trajectory from the stem cell to the terminally differentiated cell, and potentially at different stages or different steps of that process, um, you can you can really um, um, take the cell, and if you give it the right conditions, it could could go back into the stem cell state. Now onto the organoids. We use adult stem cell derived organoids, which um, uh, which are different, for example, to pluripotent stem cell derived organoids. And for example, the Kula lab recently described skin organoids as well. Uh, they are, as I said, derived from pluripotent stem cells and contain hair follicles, sebaceous glands, but also fibroblasts. And our organoids really only contain epithelial cells. And what we found in our paper that we had published earlier in 2019 is that the organoids regenerate, really recapitulate the stratified epithelium. So exactly the interfollicular epidermis that is marked by troy-positive stem cells. And when we take the troy-positive cells, as I said, and put them in culture, they really recreate in the dish the entire stratified epithelium. Um, and that's, that's what really we can see in the organoids. And those are the structures we can see. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation on stem cells in the skin. Basement membrane extract, or BME, is used globally for stem cell, organoid, and other 3D cell culture applications. When choosing a BME for 2D or 3D cell culture, key considerations usually include matrix composition, protein concentration, tensile strength, and consistency in performance in order to limit time-consuming batch-to-batch testing. Today, Biotechni is proud to introduce Cultrex Ultimatrix BME, our ultimate basement membrane extract for organoid and 3D culture. Why not find out more at biotechni.com slash research areas slash stem cell and secure your BME supply today. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Report. We've been talking with our guests, Hans Klavers and Kai Kretschmar, about their recent work on the expression and role of Troy in the epidermis and stem cells. Now, Hans, to, to get back to Troy, uh, Troy or TNF receptor superfamily 19 is a, a kind of a relatively understudied molecule. And I guess many of our listeners may not be familiar with it, but it does seem to have some pretty important roles in many stem cell systems and in cancers. Uh, so you've published a few papers now on this molecule. Could, could you kind of summarize what is known about Troy signaling and how it interacts with other pathways? Yeah, as you say, not much is known about its function, to be honest. As far as I know, but, but, but Kai might know more here, the, the knockout mice uh, uh, don't show an, an overt phenotype. Um, there are two family members, two close subfamily members. So, so it is a homologue of or a relative of the TNF receptor. So it falls in that family. So the prediction would be we would have some sort of a secreted ligand or a membrane-bound ligand. Uh, I'm not aware that we know what it is. Um, we found it originally to be co-expressed in the with the marker that we use for the gut, LGR5, in in gut stem cells. We've used it in the stomach. Uh, uh, I'm aware from the mice that we made that actually there are several more tissues that, that in which you know, the cells that are marked by TNF or SF19 uh, are good candidates for stem cells. So the current paper describes one uh, in, the, in the base layer of the epithelium. Um, but beyond being a great marker for, for some of our stem cells, uh, I, I don't think we know much about its function. But maybe Kai has more recent insights. Any thoughts, yeah. Guy? 
Yeah, I mean, Hans Hans is right. So, I mean, we actually used for some of the experiments and knock-in mice, essentially mice that had the protein coding region of Troy replaced uh, as homozygous mice. And we did not see any obvious phenotype. What I know is actually that in skin, you would have to um, knock out both um, Troy and Ida, which is another family member, actually, to actually have a phenotype. And that really perturbs half follicle formation, really showing that um, there's redundancy, but, um, but on its own, if you only remove Troy, there is no obvious phenotype. And, and in, indeed, that is actually all, uh, as far as I know, that is really known about it. It's all particularly in skin. So it's an enigma, but an interesting enigma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so Kai, uh, you're, you're a, a new group leader and you're building a new lab uh, uh, that's that's focused on head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. Um, uh, we're always interested to know what this transition from postdoc to PI was like, and, and particularly in your case, uh, you were setting up your laboratory just before the pandemic started. So how did you navigate that challenge of building a new lab and new research projects uh, while all that was going on? Yeah, fortunately for me, the move from the Netherlands to Germany really happened before the lockdown started. So that was a was a good thing. I think otherwise, you know, setting up a lab is never smooth and easy. I actually moved into an empty space. I had furniture and that was it. So we had to order a lot of equipment. And of course, due to, you know, COVID specific trouble, a lot of the equipment arrived very late. For example, our tissue culture hoods, which of course are very important to make organoids really arrived very late. So we had to wait for them for six months. So they, I started in, in January last year and those only arrived in late September. So it really, it really delayed work quite a bit. Um, and I think many other labs have been, been going through this as well in the sense of that a lot of other equipment, reagents, consumables are really difficult to get because also the suppliers are out of stock and cannot really catch up with production. So that, that has been um, a quite challenging to me. I think another important bit, of course, as starting a lab is really hiring, you know, lab members. And that, that in addition, is, has been quite a problem. So um, in-person interviews were really not possible for most of the year. So uh, hiring technicians and PhD students in that sense was a bit, a bit troubling. But fortunately, in the summer, actually, the restrictions in Germany were eased a bit. So we could actually organize a PhD student selection symposium in person where we could really meet those candidates that we had pre-selected and interview them and meet up with them and, and, you know, go to a restaurant with them to really see if, if people fitted with each other and, and, you know, if there was, a, if there was um, some kind of connection with, with us as well. So that was very good. And really, this allowed me to hire some two really highly talented and really motivated PhD students that since then have started their projects that, as you say, Martin, really centered around head and neck cancer and its, its microenvironment. Um, I think in contrast to many other labs of my colleagues who had to really shut down the labs for extended um, periods of time, we really were allowed to keep our lab operational throughout the whole time. The only restriction we had is we had to pay attention. For example, how many people were in tissue culture? I heard that was the same case in Hans's lab as well. Um, so, so that was fine. And really, it really allowed us really to establish different research lines. And we also started collecting patient material to generate organoids. Otherwise, I think going to conferences and getting to know colleagues in your field is another important really aspect of starting as a young group. And this, of course, has been very difficult as well. So I really try to contact colleagues and e-meet them, you know, online. And on that note, I'm very, look, very much looking forward uh, to my first in-person conference, actually, in nearby Frankfurt that will hopefully take place at the end of this month. 
Terrific. So um, it, it sounds like you, you've managed pretty well in the face of all of that and uh, uh, wish you the very best with your new venture. Thank you. Hans, the, the gut organoid system that you originally developed in your lab has been, now been applied to, to almost every tissue system in the body. Its adaptations have been used to study development for drug screening, for disease modeling, to name just a few applications. And there's a new approach now, uh, combining organoids from different tissues to create what are called assembloids, a kind of in vitro multi-systems approach. Now, as a scientist at the Jackson Lab, I have to ask you whether you share the view of some that, that human organoids will eventually completely supplant the use of animal models in research. Yeah, well, uh, and very you can answer, answer however you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, a very brief answer would be no. Um, first, I should say that that everything we can do with organoids now, we have actually learned from mouse experiments. I mean, the gut stem cells, the the requirements, uh, the growth factor requirements, all came out of genetic experiments in mice. But uh, so, but now we have the organoids. Uh, yeah, my lab likes, at least I do like reductionist approaches. So simple questions the simplest model systems to make uh, uh, sort of hard observations, uh, but then take them into real life. And, uh, and of course, uh, a living organism is much more than the sum of its parts. And it's easy to study a part in separation in a Petri dish, but in the end, you'll have to go to an, to an entire animal. And then one, I think, uh, concrete example here is that we've been studying the hormone secreting cell types in the gut. They're, they're, they're a miracle, they're extremely rare. So very difficult to study in vivo, but we can grow them to in large numbers in organoids. So we learn all the details about individual cells, yet they, they sense things that are in the food and they secrete things that go into the body and affect some other organ that we don't know. And some of them are new hormones that nobody's ever studied before. So and the only way to find out what these what the, what the receptors see and what the uh, hormones uh, influence is can be studied in, an, in a complete organism. So most likely in a mouse. Unfortunately, not all hormones exist in mice. So some of them, the genus is lacking. So we have to look for other organisms. So I think there will always be a back and forth. Uh, but for instance, for safety toxicology studies uh, in drug development, where you just want to know whether a, a drug is safe in humans, I think there it's quite obvious that we should replace all animal experimentation uh, by better human systems. But real deep biology and the integration of uh, you know, organs or molecules or whatever in the context of an entire body, I cannot see that that can be studied outside the complete body. So in mice or maybe in humans, if we dare to do so, or in other animals. Well, Hans, if there's ever a molecule you want to humanize in the mouse, do let us know. We're, we're pretty good <laughs> at that. <laughs> I'll remember this. <laughs> Kai, uh, we saw on your website that you were a member of the Hubrecht Institute Postdoc Committee and Career Development Committee. Uh, for the postdocs who may be listening to this podcast, that's that's a, a kind of important role. Um, how did those committees actually help the postdocs out at the Hubrecht? So in the postdoc committee, we, we had organized different events, um, for example, meet up for new postdocs so they get familiar with the postdoc community, uh, otherwise courses on grant writing, leadership, time management, and, and work-life balance. And also members of the committee did organize uh, joint retreats with our partner institutes, um, which at that time were the EMBL and the Institut Curie in, in Paris. 
And in addition, we invited different junior and uh, senior group members from abroad to discuss their research, but also to meet postdocs and students and give career advice. Um, the Career Development Committee was really, you know, for, for all, pretty much all members of the uh, Hubrecht community. So starting from postdocs, students, as well as technicians and, and also the PIs, actually. And, and there we really invited different speakers uh, with Dr. Degrees, for example, that have been uh, starting careers outside of academic research. So, um, you know, editors of science journals, scientific journals, science communicators, or scientists that work in industry or are, as, are working as consultants. And I actually also uh, recall seminars led by Hans or um, the Institute's director, Alexander van Audenaden, on how to write a great paper abstract or actually how to get your uh, research published in prestigious journals. Um, and in addition, specifically for the postdocs, we organized an event uh, with PIs that just had started their labs or were in the process of consolidating their groups and so that we could ask questions and really learn more about, a bit more about their experiences. And overall feedback has been very encouraging at that time. So I do hope that these events are very supportive and helpful for the postdoc community in the Hubert Institute. So in a way, it gave you some autonomy in shaping your, your training environment, which is terrific. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, cool. indeed. So I'm going to finish up with a question that's kind of a bit coming from my role as a journal editor. And uh, it's about organoids, and the term is used more and more broadly and includes uh, in vitro propagation of adult epithelial cells, three-dimensional cultures of pluripotent stem cells, and even culture of embryonic tissue. Now, you probably know the ISSCR currently considering looking at standards for rigor and reproducibility in stem cell research. So I wonder if you could give us some idea of what are the key characterization criteria you look for when you were viewing a, a manuscript based on an organoid system? Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me first state that, that so organoids are, are not invented by us. I, I guess Mina Bissell, for instance, has been growing 3D epithelial structures, uh, mostly from, from cell lines that are close to normal. That would, in her case, uh, mimic many uh, parts of, of the memory gland. And um, so, so, but I think the definition that I would like most is, and that would cover probably most of what I would think is a real organoid, is a 3D structure that has grown from stem cells and therefore can be, uh, uh, can be maintained for long periods of time uh, or can be regenerated from the same line of stem cells. And that recapitulates uh, many often not all, but many of the uh, um, architectural and functional aspects of a particular organ. Now, there are, there are, I used to say, two ways of making organoids from stem cells. One is from pluripotent stem cells, where you exploit development. How does an embryonic stem cell build an individual organ? And you mimic that in the lab, in a Petri dish. You end up with a mini version of that organ if everything goes well. So that's one type of organoids. The other one that, that comes mostly out of my lab is, is where you take the, uh, the fully specified tissues and you exploit the adult stem cell function that's hidden in that tissue um, to actually grow, regrow that tissue in a dish. And that often can, you can do this for long periods of time, keeps on growing. And there you don't exploit the developmental capacity of stem cells, of pluripotent stem cells, but you exploit the repair capacity of tissue stem cells. 
So it's a very different principle. And uh, so the, the the second type of organoids are much simpler. They so far are mostly uh, epithelial, and they don't have the say they don't have the nerves, or they don't. You cannot make brain organoids in that in that way, for instance. Uh, but you, they're much more easy to produce. Now, I, I, when you do a PubMed search, you see that the term organoid is is exploding. But then you then go to the papers, uh, you can see that it's not a very nobody keeps the same uh, definition, and it's often people take a cell line grow it in a gel and it forms 3d structures and then call it an organoid now that's i don't think is what we would like to term an organoid i think it really has to be a genetically normal either grown from a genetically normal pluripotent stem cell or from a genetically normal uh, tissue stem cell uh, and turned into the organ of interest um Having said that, I think it's going to be extremely important that there are going to be rigorous definitions. I know that China is thinking of a of an effort or actually has put together a committee, particularly because there's now lots of companies. So we have had company problems earlier in, in the stem cell field um, that want to make easy money. So here people claim that they grow organoids, for instance, for cancer, cancer diagnostics. If you then look at what they do, they they are not organized. They are they basically, but they basically uh, they uh, yeah they they exploit, they abuse the existence of papers, uh, and then they claim that they do something similar, sell it for lots of money to patients with bad diseases, uh, but but they can't really. So I think it's going to be extremely important that indeed that 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 the different types of organoids are going to be very strictly defined, and the ISSR would be a great organization to to take this on and i think a third class now is uh, is the uh, the blastoloids as i think or the gastroloids as they're called so uh, organoids that resemble human embryos mouse embryos uh, that are made from stem cells rather than by fertilizing an oocyte of course a huge ethical uh, um, field as well to exploit uh, but i think th those three would be my main classes that would need definitions strict definitions and uh, in addition to that maybe the cancer organoids organoids that are grown straight from tumors they're called tumoroids or, or cancer organoids well thank you the the developments around these companies selling this phony technology remind me of phony stem cell clinics uh, but we're fortunate we have leaders like yourself to keep everyone on the straight and narrow so that's all we have time for today uh thank you for joining us and thanks very much to our guests for sharing your stories with us today this has been the stem cell report thank you for listening stem cell reports is isscr's open access peer-reviewed society journal for scientists by scientists the journal publishes research and commentaries that drive the field of stem cell science forward 